This episode of New Politics was recorded on July the 2nd, 2020. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the new McCarthyism in Australia, budget cuts to the ABC and support for the arts, is it a case of too little too late? And it doesn't seem like we're all in this together after all. We look at the politics of COVID-19 management across Australia. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Oscar nominee. McCarthyism was prevalent in the United States in the 1950s and it was that old habit of making accusations of communist subversion against political enemies without any proof or substantiation. It was influenced by Republican Senator Joe McCarthy and gave rise to this infamous question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And influenced American foreign policy for well over 30 years. It seems like we're on the way to the third Red Scare, but this time around, it's not the Soviet Empire that's cast as the villain, but the Chinese Communist Party. We're not quite at the stage of blacklisting or wanting to execute people with links to communism, which is what was proposed in the United States in the 1950s. But we must be getting close. Last week, the New South Wales Labor backbencher, Shokat Musselmane, had his house raided by the AFP. The media was tipped off and the 60 Minutes program did a large expose. It has been confirmed that he's not under any suspicion, and it seems like his biggest crime so far has been to praise the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, and make favourable comments about the Chinese government. He's been suspended by the Labor Party and virtually banned from attending Parliament. Now, there might be a great deal more to this story than we know about, but it seems like the legal principle of innocence until proven guilty, especially when it comes to China, has been thrown right out the window for the time being. We don't know what he's done. Compared to Gladys Liu, where we do know what she's done in a much clearer way, and we don't know everything she's done, we do have to assume that Mr. Mosselman is innocent. If he's guilty, of course, he should be uh, charged and tried, and if found guilty, put him to jail for, for treason. There's no question about that. I'm not arguing that he must be innocent, we must presume him innocent until they can prove him guilty. I note that there's been a bit of a bubble around that it's a staff member who's involved. Again, I don't know the full details. I'm not sure that we'll ever get the full details, but it's certainly an interesting case. The raid on his house was, I think, politically stupid on behalf of the AFP, especially as he was not a suspect. It seems to me that there's a bit of the politics as theatre. And like the last four or five major raids, and I think of the one that was in Surrey Hills 18 months back, and they confiscated a ladder and a paintbrush and some copper wire, and that was it. Certainly not the stuff that immediately lends itself to weapons manufacturing or smuggling or any of the other things these groups are accused of and, and in fact, in some cases do get up to. Interesting that it's in the week before the Eden Monaro by-election too. Of course, we have to be wary about international influences in Australian politics, but the public does have a right to know about all of these influences, not just influences affecting one political party. The former Labor senator, Sam Dastiari, he was hounded out of office for a $1,600 expenses bill and a $5,000 legal bill paid by a Chinese donor. 
it was actually legal and within the entitlement rules, but we don't want this kind of activity within politics. And he was rightly scrutinised for some very, very poor decisions. But these same Chinese donors have also donated to the Liberal Party as well. And there does need to be consistency in how these issues are scrutinised. Where are the issues about Gladys Liu, the member of Chisholm in Victoria? She raised $1 million for the Liberal National Party. And there's questions about where this money actually came from, including from a company that received vast amounts of cash from a heroin trafficker. There's that old story about Tony Abbott and Stuart Robert receiving $250,000 worth of Rolex watches back in 2014 from a Chinese billionaire as well. Julie Bishop and the Julie Bishop Glorious Foundation that was used to funnel money from a Chinese uh, businessman to the WA branch of the Liberal Party. Andrew Robb, he gains an $800,000 a year part-time consultancy with a billionaire aligned to the Chinese Communist Party and he landed... This while he was still in Parliament, of course, and I might have missed all of this, but I can't remember seeing any 60 Minutes expose on a Liberal Party member of Parliament, and I can't remember the Australian Federal Police doing any raids on Liberal Party members' offices either. There was the raid on the News Corp journalist, Annika Smithhurst, which was terrible. I'm not going to say, you know, but that's News Corp. She deserved it. She by no means deserved it. I would imagine a raid on Stuart Roberts' office, Arthur Sinodinos's office, Angus Taylor's office, Barnaby Joyce's office would perhaps be more productive for the police than some of the other raids they've done. It seems that there is a clear bias. Our police departments need to be completely apolitical. And most members of parliament are very honest. You know, they may make mistakes from time to time. They may make errors of judgment from time to time. I'm not sure praising the Chinese government is the smartest thing to do. I think being critical of it for the wrong reasons is a mistake too. Certainly we should be able to criticise foreign governments when they do things that we don't agree with, whether it's the United States or Bolivia or Ukraine. If it's relevant and it's something that we don't like, we should be able to criticise them. But also, we should be able to praise them when they do the right thing. I don't know what the praise was that uh, Mr Mosselman said about the Chinese government, but maybe he genuinely agreed and thought this is worth praising. Well, I guess there does need to be suspicion of every other country. Every country around the world acts in its own interests, and that's that's why those countries exist all around the world. And there does need to be suspicion about China's motivations and China's behaviour as far as its human rights record, spying on other countries, its influence through economic and commercial means. So we have those suspicions about China in Australia at the moment, but why don't we have the same suspicions about a country such as, as Israel? They do as much or even more spying than, than China does. I'd actually be more wary about the influence of Israel in, in Australian politics. It has reached a point in Australia where currently the word China or communism is now used as a slur against political opponents of conservatives. And we had that situation where Mosselmane's office, uh, there was a tip-off from the 
Australian Federal Police to the media. 60 Minutes had enough time to produce the program, which ran last week. They had their promos during the week as well. It takes a while to create these 20-minute exposés. It's not like you get the information, then the following day you've got your 20-minute segment within 60 minutes. It takes a while to do that research. And I've noticed that the former News Corporation political editor, Renee Villaris, uh, she used to be with the Courier-Mail in Brisbane. She's now the head of communications at the Australian Federal Police. 60 Minutes has the potential to be a really important show. And I think when it was set up, for all of Kerry Packer's many faults, one of the things he did like was good journalism or quality journalism. I think he, he did have his flagship Sunday on Sunday mornings, which had some excellent journalism in it. And 60 Minutes in the Sunday Evening, which also many, many, many years ago now had some excellent journalism in it. Of course, there was a current affair and junk like that too. He also had a very firm eye on on ratings and cost. But Kerry Packer did see the, the value in quality news. We haven't seen 60 Minutes do quality news for many, many, many years It has the potential, though, to be a really important and excellent show. But I think they've started to use it as a a stick to bash the other side with and tabloid fluff for easy watching on a Sunday night. Well, I guess there is that. It's it's an ugly nexus between anti-China racism promoted too readily by conservative governments. It's enabled and supported by the Australian Federal Police, amplified and promoted by febrile media. And it's accepted by the general public that is very receptive to hearing this type of anti-China messaging. So there's a lot of contradictions within the the way that governments, the federal police and the media are working in this area. But to me, it's, it's not going to end up in anything very good. China is our second biggest or biggest trade partner. It's very hard to trade with someone who is very angry with you. And it's a bit like the Brexit thing. Who is there to trade with when you lose your biggest trading partners? There's there's really not a lot. Those markets don't exist. And Clive Palmer being the most egregious example with his anti-Chinese government rhetoric, yet dealing with China on a daily basis. And it, it was the National Liberal Party government of the Northern Territory who sold off the port of Darwin to China, which was an incredibly strategically stupid thing to do. And it's also the politicisation of the Australian Federal Police as well. Now, it's either a politicised entity or it's an incompetent entity or possibly even both, but they can easily do a raid on the offices of the ABC. They can easily raid offices of ALP MPs. They can do all sorts of terror raids at the sorts of times which are politically convenient for the incumbent conservative government, but they can't seem to be able to find the source of Angus Taylor's fraudulent behaviour or malicious emails that denigrate Christy McBain in the in the current Eden Monero by-election. So it seems like they're very good at knowing where not to look. The public service has been politicised since 96, really. One of the, I think, mistakes that I think this is a Hawke government initiative where you stopped having permanent public servants at the heads that you had a more the idea was it would be a more fluid uh, with the contracts and so you get a new head of department every few years rather than the mandarins staying in in power for 25 30 years and and the department stagnating but of course that led to political appointments 
Now, the federal police was set up, as, as we've said here before, uh, because Billy Hughes had an egg thrown at him and the state police refused to protect him. So he sets up his own police force to be able to be protected. And from there, it's been a fairly often benign course. I think Australia's only real political assassination was the deputy commissioner of the federal police in, in the 80s. They blew his car up. But it can be used by a government with the wrong motives as a political weapon. And this is a very bad thing indeed. In our previous podcast episode, we talked about Robert Menzies. And so I've looked a little bit into the history of, of anti-communism and, and Robert Menzies. Now, he used communism to great political benefit in the 1950s. And there was the Petrov affair on the eve of the 1954 election. That That's widely considered to be of great assistance to the Liberal Party victory in the election that year. Labor was expected to win the 1954 election under Evert, but they ended up losing. And this seems to be the template conservative governments use all around the world, exploiting that idea of otherness, that there's something out there that exists that is a threat to our own existence. It's something that's scary. It's unlike anything that we know. It's usually people that look different to us, speak a different language within a political or cultural system that we don't understand. It's presented as an external problem that frightens us and only the conservative government can re rescue us from this threat. Menzies used this to great effect in the 1950s. John Howard used it to great effect as well. And now Scott Morrison is doing exactly the same. In the 1950s, the Soviet Union was the country that was presented as the largest threat. Today, it's communist China. It seems to be a, a little bit of a, of a trope of mostly right-wing politicians that you continue fighting the battles of 20 years before. Menzies really was continuing a debate and a series of events that started essentially in 1917. Menzies in the 50s, and Menzies had been a minister in the 30s, and in fact becomes prime minister in 1939 on the Death Alliance. Menzies really continues this. We remember it as a time of extreme anti-communism. In fact, it wasn't that extreme compared to the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, there were secret armies formed by establishment figures working through RSLs. This isn't conspiracy stuff. This is well-documented and acknowledged stuff. D.H. Lawrence writes about them in uh, Kangaroo. There were riots in various country towns and in the cities between left and right groups. It was very dangerous, very tense, and very unpredictable. By the 50s, it had settled down somewhat. Now, there was still a communist party, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that they weren't scared of communism. Things were a lot more settled in the 50s. You had a better economy, and so things were more stable. But Menzies continues this. The Petrov affair, which leads to the High Court striking down Menzies' uh, anti-communist legislation, leading to the referendum in which 49.1% of people vote in favour of banning the Communist Party. But it showed that a lot of people were worried. But it also showed that a lot of people didn't see the Communist Party as a threat, even if they didn't agree with it. And of course, that line continues right up until 1989, although with the election of the Hawke government in 83, a lot of the wind is taken out of the sails. 
uh, partly because Hawke was by no means communist and not really a socialist either, but also the world had moved on a bit, and particularly in retrospect, not at the time, but it was clear that the Soviet empire was winding down, which led to its collapse in 89 to 91. We've got this thing back about foreign governments and that the Chinese are communists. Now, that's a debate we could have. Well, governments do need to be careful in the way that they manage all of these issues. And just the other day, Scott Morrison did make an announcement of $270 billion for a 10-year program to produce missiles. Now, the issue was that he didn't directly mention China, but it was all about the post-COVID-19 war that Australia needs to be ready and prepared. This $270 billion that was announced, it's actually an old announcement, but of course there's a by-election coming up on, on Saturday, so he made this big announcement. Governments do need to be careful in the way that they make these announcements and what they're actually attempting to achieve, but they also need to avoid looking ridiculous and avoid being the subject of parody where life imitates art. You know what? I'll name one and you just nod. China. Yeah, okay. And what exactly are we protecting? Strategic interests. Specifically, Colonel? Indo-Pacific strategic Again, interests. Brigadier, really specifically. Indo-Asia-Pacific yeah. strategic You know what? Interests. I'll say it and then you nod. Our trade routes. Yeah. And who is our number one trading partner? Shall we use an odd system? Sure. China? Yeah. So under this scenario, we're spending close to $30 billion a year to protect our trade with China from China. And that doesn't strike anyone at this table as odd. So that's a snippet from the television satire, Utopia. Is life imitating art or is art imitating life? It's hard to know. But spending $270 billion on missiles to protect Australia from its largest trading partner does seem ridiculous. I'm not sure how much the Chinese government will be laughing, though, but it's probably not the best time to get them offside. There's not much more we can trade with Britain for example. And again, one of the motivations here may be to try and help Boris Johnson out of, a, out of a hole. He did that big announcement about how you'll finally be able to get Vegemite and Tim Tams. Look at this, this is what Brexit has bought. And you could already get them anyway. Of course, a missile announcement is a, a thing that governments do, and again, particularly non-Labor governments, to make you seem macho and virile and strong and concerned and I think one of the broader implications of the Black Lives Matter protests is that guys with guns isn't a solution anymore. I saw Greg Sheridan had some kind of jingo nonsense about how oh, people are going to think twice before they in invade Australia now. And I'm thinking, who is going to invade Australia? We are under no threat. Well, that was quite a ridiculous proposition put forward by Greg Sheridan. No one's going to think twice about it because they're not even thinking once about it. Like, it's just such a ridiculous issue to point out. And the number of missiles is so small. China, the whole army is four times the size of the Australian population. 25 missiles isn't going to make a dent. And in a time where it has been a government-caused mass unemployment... Putting money, the announcement should have been we're cancelling this 200 or we're postponing it, you know, if they really must do it. We're postponing it and we're using that $270 million for a universal basic income or to extend JobKeeper for 12 months or to buy more testing equipment or to fund hospitals or to, you know, that to me 
seems to be the priority at the moment. But no, let's let's buy some missiles. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the barbarians are at the gate. When they hear the word culture, do they reach for their guns? We look at the ABC funding cuts and a jobs package for the arts and entertainment industries. Now The ABC is an important institution in Australian life, but for this government, maybe not so important after all. Just a few months since it performed essential news and communications during the bushfire season and was attributed with saving many lives with their emergency updates and broadcasts, the ABC has implemented an $84 million cutback, resulting in the loss of 250 jobs, including 70, in their news gathering services. And that's close to $783 million in cutback since the Liberal National Government returned to office in 2013. The arts, screen and entertainment industries, they employ over 600,000 people all across Australia, contribute $112 billion to the Australian economy each and every year. They were actually the first to be impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and will take the longest to recover whenever society and the economy are stabilised. The government has announced a $250 million rescue package for the arts. $90 million of this is in loans, but it's far too late and too little. And to put this amount into context, it's 0.2% of the overall amount of $130 billion allocated to the JobKeeper program. It's not going to be enough to save the industry. As someone who works in art and entertainment, it's been tough. I haven't performed a gig for months. I know a lot of my colleagues and friends haven't either. There's been little bits and pieces. This is music. I think for artists, for playwrights, for actors, there's been bits and pieces of work. It's certainly not enough. And $250 million works out to $416 each, about half a week's pay. The Prime Minister doesn't seem to get it. There's more people who work in the us entertainment than than the mining industry. It seems, too, when he had Guy Sebastian nodding along to his announcement, this is the Prime Minister's taste. Now, I'm not going to disparage Guy Sebastian. I think it was a little foolhardy to be seen with the Prime Minister, given that the arts and entertainment industry tends to not like non-Labour governments. It's a tricky thing should you appear with a politician as a musician? Well, I guess it does depend on who that politician is. But we, all, we do have to look at the politics of this whole issue because, as, as you mentioned, the, the arts and ent- people that work in the arts and entertainment industries, they're generally not Liberal National Party supporters. The, I, I did find out the statistics on this, and traditionally around 85% of the arts communities or people that work in the arts communities 
vote or preference the Labor Party. So is this a question of conservative government deciding to punish its enemies, which is what it usually does? Or is there something else going on here? Like there's obviously a large contribution that the art, screen and entertainment industries make to the Australian economy. It's $112 billion each and every year. Obviously an economic benefit to, to the Australian economy. To me, it seems like this is just political payback or it's punishment for people that do not traditionally support the Liberal National Party. I do think that's a bit of it. I also think, though, that it's a sector that the Prime Minister doesn't think about. He plays his Tina Arena albums. And again, I'm not disparaging Tina Arena. He listens to commercial FM radio, to pop music. And again, that's fine. But I don't think it ever occurs to him to think about how this stuff is produced. He had the ridiculous assertion that it's also a boost to the building industry because carpenters build the sets without really understanding that it's a different skill to building a house. Neither skill is better or worse than the other. They're both amazing skills. But you can't get in your general house builder to build a working theatre set, not without some kind of retraining or transition period anyway. In the same way, set builders aren't terribly good at building a house. Again, not to say that one is better or more skilled than the other. I can do neither, so I'm in absolute awe of anyone who can do it. It's just small-minded, parochial, ignorant policy that has not, as usual, been thought through. So compared to the rest of the JobKeeper program and all of the stimulus funding that has been announced or allocated or they've got the ability to spend up to $303 billion in rescue packages over the next five years, $250 million, that's almost like breadcrumbs to the arts community. That's one factor. Looking at the ABC, now they've implemented an $84 million cutback and it's $783 million in cutbacks since 2013. The ABC is an organisation, it's never perfect. We've been critics of the of its political reporting and a lack of diversity, but aside from those issues, it's one of the best broadcasters in the in the world. And we did also have this ridiculous situation where Scott Morrison during the week and other ministers responsible for it, Paul Fletcher as well, they've been coming out and saying, well, there's never been any cutbacks at the ABC. Everyone that's been trying to call out the government on this on this issue, they've got the budget papers to refer to, going back all the way to the 2014 budget. It's there recorded, it's documented, it's everywhere. But yet here is the Prime Minister denying that cutbacks have ever been made. Like there, there is sometimes where you can say something and then contradict yourself later deliberately and people will forget. But people remember the cuts to the ABC the ABC is there to tell you what's being cut and uh, they're losing journalists who are fairly high profile to lose the chief economic reporter, Emma Alberici, in the middle of a recession, I think says volumes. One of the things they're cutting, of course, is uh, factual television, which is just insane. I think when you look at that, they've wanted that Ultimo building for years to sell off, like they have the powerhouse right next door. They dislike the ABC because people will listen to it before any other radio station in particular, but also TV. The commercial broadcasters don't understand uh, this crucial thing is that they don't actually lose audience to the ABC. They've always said that people who are watching the ABC aren't watching us. There is a group who would never watch Channel 7, Channel 9 or Channel 10 
And then there's a group of people who watch those stations all the time and then turn over when they want stuff and then turn back. They're not really in competition with them. It's not a ratings thing. And you won't actually earn any more money with the numbers that are going across to the ABC. I think it's Australia's most trusted news at 70-79%. The government's proposition has been this idea that the entire media landscape is changing quite dramatically. There's been a lot of income that's been lost by the commercial television and news networks and the ABC needs to follow suit as well. I'm not sure about that argument. My, my argument would be, well, if other media landscapes are changing quite dramatically, well, the ABC needs to, needs to be boosted. If, there's, if there needs to be support for the media industry over, overall, well, why not have an enlarged ABC rather than cutting it back? It's the people who think only in terms of profit. The open the borders now because we're not making profit. There's no sense of culture. There's no sense of society. It's just we must be profitable. And if it doesn't make a profit, then it is no good. I think what lockdown has taught a lot of us is that there is more to life than this neoliberal narrow approach. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the government keeps saying it, but are we really all in this together? It was meant to be a time when politics was to be put aside. That's what the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said. But the COVID-19 response has been a sharpening of the ideological knife and division in the community is more apparent than ever. What started off as collective efforts and this notion that we're all in this together has descended into national point scoring about opening up borders or not opening them up, opening up the economy and whether schools should be open or not. Australia was doing quite well with the number of coronavirus cases, getting down to as low as 380 cases nationally, but there has been a spike in Melbourne, and the national number of active cases is 724. But blame is not in short supply. It's still unclear why the numbers have spiked, but the conservative media has blamed the end of Ramadan as the cause, even though that ended in May, over four weeks ago. They've blamed Sudanese communities, Lebanese communities, the Black Lives Matter protests. There has been great pressure on the Victorian government to ease their restrictions very, very quickly. And this recent spike shows why it was wise to be cautious. And there has been even greater pressure on the Queensland government to open up their border. And I think they've finally had enough. Here's the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. I think for a start, these border wars have got to stop and... I think a national leader should have been able to bring all of the states and territories together. Frankly, I'm a bit sick that Queensland has been singled out as opposed to South Australia and uh, Tasmania, just to name a few. At the moment, what we have is a bit of a, a confrontation uh, where uh, fights are being picked at different states. And uh, frankly, I don't think it's good enough. And I've been silent for a long time and I will not be silenced for standing up for what I believe to be right, for the health advice that I'm being provided for. Conservatives never miss the opportunity to play politics, do they? Tim Smith, the Victorian Liberal, has 
showered himself in humiliation and disgrace with his texts. Victoria, I think it's fair to say, was very unlucky. They had managed it pretty well. And we're really living in relatively unprecedented times. No one in power was alive the last time we had this type of pandemic in 1920. And a lot of the memory was lost. For all of the talk of Victoria, it didn't have the Ruby Princess come in. And New South Wales has had, as of the 2nd of July, 3,203 cases in total. Victoria has had 2,231. So this spike doesn't even go near the spike that the Ruby Princess gave us. The 443 cases in South Australia, a good percentage of those stem from the Ruby Princess. When you criticise the Andrews government, and I'm, and I'm sure that there's stuff that could have been done better, mostly not opening up, Victoria pales into comparison to New South Wales and, and how bad we've done. The other thing is, too, is that it seems Victoria is trying to give honest numbers. I'm not sure New South Wales is. Last week, active cases were cut from 91 to 5, based on some dubious statistics. Anyone who'd had the the disease more than two weeks wasn't counted. Anyone in the hotels weren't counted. Now, that's actually not so bad because we're presumably not getting into contact with the hotels. A lot of people who were in hospital stopped being counted. Now, I believe there's about 54 people who are in hospital in New South Wales at the moment with it. Uh, They've managed to slice that to five people in the state total. Now, one of the arguments is that there's other complications and they don't have the disease, but they're still sick. But the complications come from the disease. While we're looking at Daniel Andrews, and again, it's, you know, Ramadan and it's dog whistle, dog whistle, dog whistle, dog whistle. I think New South Wales needs a good, firmer look at what's been going on. Well, it might end up being a case of lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. But obviously, if a number is coming down, that makes a particular state look good or look better than another state. Governments are never perfect. I think that's pretty obvious. But when there are mistakes, they need to own up to them. And and in Victoria, we're still not exactly sure why these numbers have spiked, although there have been discussions about particular quarantine hotels possibly being the source of that. And that's what the Victorian government is trying to do at the moment. They've set up an inquiry to find out what has happened here. Well, governments do need to take responsibility for these sort of actions. But the main thing that Dan Andrews has been putting the emphasis on is trying to make sure that these cases don't spiral out of control. And you can leave all the blame for what happened and who did what or who didn't do what or whatever. You can leave that for another time. But trying to attribute blame and make sensationalist media accusations is not the right thing to do at this time. Gladys Berejiklian isn't responsible for the disease. Daniel Andrews isn't responsible for the disease. Scott Morrison isn't responsible for the disease. All we can do is judge their actions when we know what the consequence of these actions are. Now, we've been lucky in New South Wales in that we haven't had that massive spike yet. I can't see how banning Victorians but not closing the border helps. But again, we'll give another 10 days or so and see and see what happens here. Anastasia Palaszczuk isn't responsible for the disease either or Mr Marshall in South Australia. We are living in relatively unprecedented times. Well, there's also other issues related to COVID-19 support as well. 
The JobKeeper program that commenced a few months ago, it was announced as a $130 billion package. That's been trimmed back to $60 billion now. So obviously, there's there's money to play with there. The JobKeeper support can go on for some time. Government has been talking about removing JobKeeper after September. They've actually got a report that they're sitting on at the moment and there's speculation that they're hiding that because of the upcoming by-election on the weekend in Eden Monero. If they had good news, I'm sure they would have announced it as soon as possible. They've got bad news about this. They want to end JobKeeper as soon as possible. They don't want it to influence the result of the Eden by-election. I'd say that Monday, Tuesday next week, as soon as the result is known, that's when they'll make their announcement that JobKeeper is going to end as soon as possible. They don't like to help the poor. They don't believe in welfare. The lie came out that, oh, people aren't coming back to, you know, my hospitality job. This is completely wrong, that people are actually eager to go back to work, but they want to go back to a safe workspace. You don't want to go back to work and then 10 days later be in lockdown again, or worse, sick with the disease. The first guy to come out I've seen has been alleged as a member of the Nazi or the fascist organization, the Proud Boys. I can't quite get proper confirmation of this, but certainly a pub owner saying I can't get people seems to me to be a little bit, it doesn't ring quite quite true. And whether he's asked the wrong people, whether he's not paying enough, whether the people he wanted were already hired and he's misinterpreted it as something else, I we can't know. But it was the narrative that ran for a bit, but was quickly shot down. Now, we also have to think about what is the merit in a federal government using terminology such as job snobs or dole bludgers yet again. Unemployment officially is sitting at 7.4%. Now, if you take away the job keeper factor, unemployment is closer to 21%. To me, it doesn't seem like a politically sensible move or a socially responsible move to actually start blaming all of these people for not looking for work. There's not enough work out there. That's that's why there's 20% effectively or 21% effectively unemployment rate. It just seems to be getting back to these ideological games, kicking the unemployed. There's not enough work out there. It's just It's just a questionable process and a questionable tactic that they're using at the moment. The most patrician of our Prime Ministers, Stanley Melbourne Bruce, was Prime Minister right at the beginning of the Depression. He loses office in uh, 1929. He never used those terms. The term dole bludger is a a term of contempt. It's a a bullying term. It's a term of power. It's a term that privilege uses against the unprivileged. In the 30s, the government, and from 31 through to 30, through to 41, it was a conservative government. The unemployed were looked upon as unfortunate. Now, this is problematic too. At least there's a compassion there. What the government lacks is compassion. If you can't find a job, there's something wrong with you. It's just extraordinary that he would think that he would keep. And at 21%, everyone's going to know someone who's had hours cut, who's lost their job, who can't get their normal contracting work. This has worked in the past for them, and they don't understand the shifting sands of political discourse. Well, the other factor is that in the seat of Eden Monero, that's on the New South Wales south coast, 
unemployment is is at an incredibly high level at the moment. It was high before the pandemic started. It was high before the bushfire started. To come out and make all of these propositions about dull bludgers or unemployed people not looking for work. It just doesn't seem to be a politically wise move, or as I mentioned, not a, not even a socially wise move. To, and to me, it gets back to what we started talking about in this segment, that politics was meant to be put aside during this pandemic. But for some, including the Prime Minister, it seems like it's always an opportunity to play politics. It's going to bite him badly. And the stupid thing is, is that Eden Monero shouldn't be a point of discussion. They've got a pretty poor candidate by the looks of things, and she was a fourth choice. It's a seat that was a Labor seat, and the statistic is is that overwhelmingly governments don't win seats from opposition in by-elections. We should be able to say, oh, look, Labor's going to retain this one, but we can't. Uh, They cheat, they lie, they pork barrel, anything can happen. I'm not even going to make a prediction. By-election there on July the 4th in the seat of Eden Monero. We're not going to make any predictions. I got the 2019 general election prediction horribly wrong. David, you got it right last time. So, um, But still, the polls are unknown. We just don't know what's going to happen here. We'll discuss all of this in our next podcast episode. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more up until the end of August, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.